Good evening, Airmen of Troy, and welcome to another episode of Sound Off, Leadership Lessons with the AOT. Our mission here is to inspire and develop future leaders of the Air Force and beyond. I'm Cadet Shin. And I'm Cadet Fuentes. And today's guest is retired Air Force Captain Jesus Acuna Perez. Hello. Good evening, Cadet. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm honored that you've asked me to be on your podcast. Thank you. All right. Well, welcome to the show, sir. Uh, to start off, why don't you just uh, start by telling us a little about yourself. Uh, where are you originally from? Okay. All right. So again, Jesus Roberto Acuña Perez, originally from Tijuana, Mexico, just south of the border, just a couple hours south of here. Uh, born on both sides of the border, born and ra- I should say raised on both sides of the border, uh, meaning Tijuana and San Diego, California. And to be more specific, uh, southeast San Diego, California, which is considered to be the barrio, right? Logan Heights, Shelltown, uh, those type of areas. And you'd like to know a little bit more about me as in what? Let me see. Be a little more specific. What would you like to know? That's a very broad question. Uh, sure, sir. How about you just tell us about uh, your childhood growing up and um, leading up to that, what made you decide to join the Air Force or the military in general? Okay. Uh, that's, that's a good question. So uh, <clears throat> I was raised, uh, like I said, on both sides of the border. And unfortunately, I was one of those statistics that uh, didn't grow up with a, with a father figure initially. Uh, we lived in a, in a town by the nickname of Shelltown, which is right across uh, 32nd Naval, Naval Street. Uh, Naval, I can't even talk, excuse me. Uh, Naval Base, 32nd Naval Base in San Diego. Um, up until the age of eight, I really didn't have a father figure. It was my mother and my younger sister, who uh, was essentially uh, always the baby and even acted like a baby, very spoiled. So <clears throat> it was a, a tough upbringing. We lived in a very small one bedroom uh, house in an alleyway behind a liquor store and a uh, catty corner from a, a bar. Uh, no pavement there, believe it or not. This is San Diego. Uh, no car, mom didn't speak any English. And so uh, I, I quickly learned what it was like to uh, parentify. I was a man of the house, um, even at the age of eight. Uh, even when my sister was a toddler, I had to learn to uh, change her diapers, make her bottles. And, uh, and, and basically, uh, as my, my later on, my, my stepdad would coin it, uh, learn how to build character. So... Uh, our, our method of transportation at the time was public transportation. We'd catch the bus around Main Street and visit our relatives in Tijuana. So uh, mom's mom, my grandma, and some relatives in Tijuana. That was a, a traditional trip for, on the weekends. Mother worked at the fish cannery. Uh, she cleaned fish uh, for bumblebee seafoods for many years. And uh, then from there, uh, I think I was I was fortunate in the sense that I feel that God sent us my my stepdad, John. And uh, Johnny was was a fantastic man. He worked at the cannery as well, which is how he met my mother. Uh, he came into the picture and uh, began courting my mom and obviously knew that there were these, these two kids involved as well. So uh, very, very, very smart man. Instead of asking to, to be my dad, he asked if he could be my friend. And so... The interesting part about that was uh, I really didn't have a father figure or, or a male adult 
at the time to really lean on. So when I realized that he was paying attention to me and he asked me that question, it just went hand in hand. And so that was the easy, easy answer. Sure, yeah, you can be my friend. Uh, so then from there, uh, things progressed. Uh, he decided to marry my mom and take us in. And my world quickly expanded. And so uh, I just lost my stepdad uh, a month ago. So it's, it's, it's interesting that you bring this up too. Oh, thank you. But uh, I realized how naive I was. So living in the barrio at eight years of age, I wasn't very keen to the, to the American culture. Uh, my world revolved around soccer, football. Right? Um, I didn't know anything about uh, American football. I didn't know anything about cable TV. I didn't know about a lot of the things that some, uh, some of us take for granted, right? And after meeting my dad, uh, you know, we moved to the lower middle class part of San Diego, area called Paradise Hills. So uh, quickly started teaching me things. But the thing was with my stepdad, uh, he wasn't a formally educated man. He was uh, uh, very, very, very much similar to how I was being brought up. So light-skinned Mexican, and, and, and I'll have to tell you all this, it's a cultural thing, but uh, when you're growing up and you have this physical composition and, you know, where you're lighter complected, it seems that you have to prove yourself uh, to be the same or even more, you know, Chicano or Mexican than, than the other folks around. So, uh, so he gave me very good advice. Uh, the number one thing he taught me was respect. So that's how uh, I would say that was one of the foundational uh, aspects of my, my dad's, I call him my dad, my dad's and my relationship. And so <clears throat> as things would progress, even in Paradise Hills, there were still a few bad elements. And some of those bad elements involve gangs. And I happened to get involved with them, uh, not formally, like some of my friends, but but as we say, I ran with the gang because I grew up with them, we played sports together. And so it was almost a, a natural progression to, to fall into the clica, right? And so uh, uh, as things developed and I hit the high school era, our house was, was shot up in a drive-by after we returned from uh, a trip to Texas. And since we had a small piece of property in Rosarito Beach, Mexico, my dad said, you know what? We're not, I'm not having this. We're not, I'm not gonna leave you all at risk here. We're moving. So we decided collectively to move to Rosarito. And it wasn't as if we were moving to a nice beach home in Rosarito, Mexico. And by the way, Rosarito is just uh, 20 miles south of the border. It was, uh, it was as, as if we moved onto a ranch. I had to literally get up at four in the morning, uh, crank up, put gas in, in the generator, crank it up, get the water pump going, warm up the water on the stove, put it in the bathtub and get ready by candlelight and then drive from Rosarito to Chula Vista High School, which was my new high school. I did that beginning of my junior year of high school through senior, but uh, as, as life would have it, I, I, I couldn't hang. And you know, I, I felt like I was an, uh, an, an, an ungrateful son to a certain point with my mom because I would, I would always bicker with her and complain, why did we move back to this place? And this place sucks. And, and it wasn't her fault, poor thing. So uh, needless to say, I left in my uh, 
at the beginning of my senior year. I, I just moved out of the house in Rosarito and I lived with friends uh, in Chula Vista and Paradise Hills. And from there, uh, I wasn't doing all that well. I was, uh, I've always worked. I've always worked since the age of 12. So that wasn't an issue. I always had my, independently had my own money, uh, uh, purchased my own clothes, paid for my car insurance, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But nevertheless, uh, there was nobody truly there to govern me and keep me straight. And and in that era, I think uh, Mexican parents were a little more hands-off <clears throat> in terms of we're, we brought you to America, we showed you what's right, what's wrong, and now it's up to you to kind of fend for yourself. And you, you know, you're essentially a grown man at almost 18 years of age, so go out there and get it. And uh, and then I, I didn't go out there and get it because what I was doing was cutting class. And so I had, I think, uh, 35 absences the first semester and 41 absences the second semester. And uh, I just spoke at my best friend's we uh, 25th anniversary wedding uh, this past weekend. And I told him the story. The only reason I didn't get expelled from school was because the principal and I shared the same name, which was Robert Acuna. So he had, a, I think he had a little sympathy for me and he allowed me to say, but I didn't graduate with my class and, and, I, and I'm glad, I'm glad it was, a, I think that was one of the most painful lessons of my life, which was uh, my social studies teacher and my economics teacher decided that there was nothing I was, I'd be able to do uh, to catch up on credits and, and walk with my class and receive my diploma. So I, gr I graduated with what they call the rainbow program. This rainbow program consisted of similar students in a similar situation where they lacked a couple of credits, would complete them over the summer, and then, you know, have a, a, a I guess, a combined ceremony. And every student had his or her cap and gown from his or her school. So you would see yellows from, say, uh, Mar Vista, or green from Benito Vista High School, and blue from Children's High School. The rainbow program. But I'm glad I did that. I, I earned my high school diploma, not in the best way, but I, but I did. I earned it. And so the neat part about that was that I had to quit my job in order to focus 100% on school. And when I went, when I completed the, the uh, diploma portion, returned to the job, they said, hey, Roberto, we no longer need you. Well, well, I didn't know what to do with myself. So I started looking for, for employment. I couldn't find any. I felt useless because, again, I was used to working. So uh, <clears throat> I decided maybe I, should, maybe I should enlist. Maybe I should join the military. And all I really knew about the military at the time was uh, my two step-uncles. One was a Vietnam War vet who got shot up really bad. He didn't talk about it much. He was... Uh, an engineer on a Chinook, and he took some really heavy fire uh, over Laos. And so uh, the, the surface to air projectiles, uh, you know, penetrated his sternum, came out through the top of the, the sternum into his uh, chin area and then blew out his head. He has a, a glass eye, etc. It's a miracle he's even alive. So he never really spoke about anything to do with the military. And on the other hand, I had one uncle who volunteered during the same era, but uh, but was sent to Germany. 
uh, he didn't talk about his experience much either, other than the fact that Germany was great, the beer was wonderful, and his experience was good. He was a radio repairman. Rest in peace uh, to my Uncle Rob. So I really thought that the military was the army. That's that's all. That's that's all I knew. Uh, I didn't interact with recruiters, and it just so happened to be that I did take the ASVAP one of those days that I did not ditch. And uh, as things would progress, my dad drops me off at the multiple uh, multiple branch recruiting station. They had. Army, Navy, Marine Corps, and Air Force there in Chula Vista. So I decided I'm going to try my luck with the Army. That's what I know. I mean, two uncles who were Army, why not? And the Army recruiter asked me, "Hey, um, so what do you know how to do?" And I said, well, "I don't know. I've worked at a, I worked in the uh, grocery store industry for many years. Well, how about supply?" And I said, "Sure, that sounds good. Can you get me to Italy?" Of course, we can get you to Italy. So I signed all the documents, et cetera, and we were uh, progressing well through the uh, application process. And then on a different occasion, when he asked me to return to pick up my diploma, uh, my dad drops me off and he's not there. The recruiter's not there. So now I have no car. The recruiter's not there. And I, 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 what, what would I do with my time? So I decided I'd check out the other services, the other branches. And as I walked by them, I remember passing the Navy and stating, I don't like the ocean. I get seasick. I don't want to serve, you know, on overseas or on seas anywhere. Um, and then I get to uh, the Marine Corps and say, come on. Yeah. Hoorah. You know, and I've, I've been the type of person where I feel I don't have to prove my machismo, you know, and that's a, that's a very strong culture, Latino cultural thing. But I felt like I don't need to prove myself to, to you guys. So, no thanks. And I noticed there were four to six recruiters per per uh, per branch there, per recruiting branch. And then I get to the Air Force, and there's just one recruiter, and he's sitting way back in in the office. I walk in. I'm looking at the pictures of the aircraft on the walls, and I, I guess everyone seems to dream about airplanes at some point. Maybe I think that, that's I think that's how I I, I think it's to be. And then I realized that the recruiter's not really paying attention to me. And I took, I took note of that. So I asked the recruiter and his name, you know, bless his heart, Tech Sergeant Sawatsky. I'm never going to forget the guy. So what do I have to do if I want to join the Air Force? And he says, I said, because I'm, I'm getting ready to join the Army. He said, well, hold on a minute. Let me just show you this. And he gets a newspaper clipping. And this is uh, 1989. Uh, yeah, 19, um, online too, 1990. So at that, in that, on that newspaper clipping was a quality of life comparison of all the branches. At that time, there were six uh, people rooming or bunking together in one room for the Army, basically the same thing for the Marine Corps, um, and two people per room in the Air Force. I said, wow, okay. Best food, Air Force, Navy, um, Marine Corps, and then the Army. So overall, that was the same ranking for, for the branches. No offense to the Coast Guard, but they weren't even on the, on the, on the racket stack. So I, I told them, well, that, the Air Force sounds great. I mean, who, who wouldn't want the best food? And who, who wouldn't want a room with just one other person instead of five more? And uh, I, I told him, I'm, I'm interested. And he says, well, I tell you what. He says, uh, 
if you're uh, if you took the ASVAP and you scored high enough, you're in. And and I and he says I'll tell you I, I'll take this even further. I'll go ahead and start the application process. And uh, if it's if you're good enough, or you're in. If not, well then I'm I apologize. I won't be able to do it. I said okay, that sounds good. Thank you. So technical sergeant Stawatsky ends up to me now that I realize it. I think he was a like an angel sent to me. I swear. I believe in fate, and so uh, this man began going the extra mile. So, not not having a working vehicle, he would drop me off at the border uh, there in San Ysidro. He even asked me one time, "Do you think uh, you think I might be able to take you all the way to Rosarito?" I don't know, sir. And no, they wouldn't let him take a GSA, a government vehicle, into Mexico, right? But at least he asked. I mean, his heart was there. So. Uh, so for all you recruiters who may hear this podcast, please understand that Texar and Swatsky is like the gold standard or the platinum standard that I always gauge other recruiters against, right? Because I was such a layman. I didn't know anything about the military, much less about the Air Force. Um, so when my scores came back and they were high enough in mechanics, I, I was in the 90s, almost, almost a perfect score when it came to mechanics. Uh, you know, he was. A, he told me, "Hey, I can get you to be a crew chief. You can have your name stenciled on the side of an, side of an aircraft." Well, how exciting is that? You know, and I loved wrenching on on cars and motorcycles and whatnot. So that was fantastic. Up to the point that we found out that uh, I wasn't I wouldn't qualify because I wasn't a U.S. citizen. So uh, that was news. And so then we, I said, "Well, what about? Could I be a military police person?" Uh, it says, oh, uh, security forces. Uh, nope, you have to be uh, an American citizen for that too. So I said, okay. Well, my, I said, my dad says for me to do something that I can apply in the civilian world in case I don't like it. I don't plan on doing much more than three or four years anyway. How about this air transportation job? So, uh, so I said, okay. And so as you read the job description, it was working with passengers, so passenger service. Uh, cargo service and then it became a specialized cargo service where you're working with hazardous cargo and compatibility compatibility and are you able to move uh, lithium batteries and explosives and how, how much separation if if you do put them on an aircraft do you have to have and shoring and all these special requirements for for movement of cargo and then there was a small segment of oh by the way there's also this small specialized branch that's combat ready, that deploys at any given moment, and that basically works out of austere locations. I said, okay, that sounds interesting. They learned on, they land on dirt runways and they basically compose what we call the, uh, the hammerhead or, or the, uh, the airfield for other aircraft. So I took note of that. Um, so needless to say, I, I went with that job. It sounded interesting. It was everything that you would do at an airport only it would be done military style. Um, when he asked me to return, I did return. The recruiter asked me to return to finalize the process. And there was the army recruiter. And then uh, I just kind of like looked at him. And he says, he kind of scolded me. And I said, hey, you weren't here. <laughs> and he's like, well, did you steal my, did you steal the pen off my podium set? No, sir, I did not. But he was, he was very upset. And so, uh, so I joined the Air Force, and I was supposed to go in December, uh, 
it was it was December of '89, uh, and Desert Storm was was about to happen or just happened, just kicked off. So I was excited about that. I was working at Circuit City at the time and doing rather well. Uh, my friends were upset with me because I was leaving them. Uh, these were my childhood friends that I'd known since pretty much since middle school. And uh, remember what I said is that we were involved with the gang stuff. Uh, but at that point, in, in, at that part of high school, we, we progressed, if you will, from street gang stuff to wanting to be narco traffickers. So this is before I decided to join the Air Force. I, I thought, yeah, I can make easy money. You know, I could uh, work for the cartel, the Arellano family or somebody like that in Tijuana. Why not? And I mean, when you're young and you're dumb and you're daring and you think you're invincible, uh, those thoughts definitely uh, enter your mind. And, and I was pretty dead set on that. And I think uh, I was the leader of my my friends. And so we we're all kind of headed in that direction. So when I just when I out of the blue said, I'm going I'm going to join the Air Force and I'm going to be leaving. They couldn't believe it, especially my best friend, Carlos. Uh, so it was, uh, it was it was shocking for them. I know I, I, I probably ran way too long with that question, but and I probably answered a couple other questions in between. But please, sorry about that. No problem. Thank you so much for sharing so much of that powerful story. Um, so after you joined the Air Force and you were part of that AFSC, why did you decide to pursue an officer route and join um, OTS? That kind of came about uh, through a commander from Travis Air Force Base. So uh, I loved my job. I, air transportation was my favorite job. I, I knew it in and out. I was uh, one of the one, if not the first airman to be selected to be a quality assurance evaluator in the Pacific theater, meaning, uh, well, let me back up a little bit. What got me to that point was uh, I decided I was going to cross train. So, so I began as an air transporter, what we call an aerial porter. I did really good. And I got sent to many Australian locations uh, and other awesome locations like uh, Cairo, Egypt. I lived there for six months. On, where the where the Giza pyramids are, lived in a five star hotel, ate the best cuisine you can imagine, uh, and, and the rarest of cuisines like frog legs and and rabbit and uh, king prawns that were probably without head from here to here and about that you know around that much diameter, and uh, they would they would prepare them any way we 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 chose, which was neat, and uh, we also had the opportunity to. Climb Mount Sinai, which is where God sent the Ten Commandments to Moses. Uh, we got to dive in the Red Sea for $50 and have a fresh catch and eat it right there on the boat. Um, and then, of course, climb pyramids and ride camels and do all that stuff in and out through uh, the desert. Uh, I also got to, to spend time in Central America and in, in Honduras, where uh, I did a lot of counter drug interdiction stuff. Uh, I also translated. I put my language skills to use, so that was that was great. Um, visited El Salvador, uh, visited Guatemala. Uh, I think I told Cadet Fuentes uh, I was invited by the pilots. I was a load planner, so my job was to essentially inspect the cargo, ensure that it was airworthy, and then ensure that it was compatible th with the airframe that was getting ready to fly out of uh, Honduras. 
and I got to know the pilots who were rotating in and out. So they, and they were very kind people. I mean, they're great. And, and I think they took a, a liking to me in terms of, uh, of our, of our uh, relationship. We were very, very friendly. So they, one day they asked me, Hey, would you like to, would you like some, some Wendy's, Wendy's fast food? I said, sure. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Well, how about we ask your boss if you could fly with us? We'll come right back. And sure enough, so from Honduras, we flew to Guatemala, landed in Guatemala City, walked out of command post, went to the went to the Wendy's there, ate, had a good time, scoped it out, beautiful area, and then got back on the aircraft and flew back to Honduras. So all those little things were, were, were fantastic. I even got to visit a place called Iguanaville, which was a radar location. Uh, also for, for drug addiction. The water was just pristine, crystal clear, nobody around. So and I talk about resorts. This was uh, one of the best. So I got I got to visit a, a lot of places. Uh, and that was the first time I also got to visit Europe, England, Germany, etc. So that was that. Um, but I think uh, I was savvy enough to cross train into information management. So I was, uh, I was uh, an administrative clerk. And I learned, that's where I, and, and I end up learning how to write Air Force style, right? Memorandums, evaluations, awards. And I, I, I was really frustrated because I wasn't the best writer, even though I love the English language, uh, I wasn't the best writer. And so I had a, a captain who worked over the section, Captain Robert B. Sharp. And this man just, he would bleed red all over the, all over the document. Not once, not twice, but maybe four times. And so you can imagine my level of frustration, but I think that's how you learn. And that's how you build character through those you know, frustrating moments and challenges. So I learned. And so all of a sudden I, I receive orders out of the blue. And I, now I'm going from Texas as an, an information manager to Yokota Air Base Japan in a, in, a, in a recall format. So now I'm returning to be an aerial porter and when you know it, I'm going to have the section where we have to service aircraft, meaning somebody's got to clean those laboratories, right? I mean, after a long flight, especially when we say over the pond, uh, somebody's got to know how to hook up the hoses from the laboratory service truck and drain all that crap, literally, and flush it and clean it and, and then, you know, deodorize it, sanitize it. So that was my job for, for almost a year. But I'll, I'll tell you, this is where you can collectively use your experience and, and put it to work. Um, the grocery store industry that, you know, that I worked with uh, for so many years paid off because after we were done with our missions there at Yokota Air Base, we had to stock everything in our, in our, in our I guess you'd call it like a, a, a mini store area. Everything from toilet paper to medicine kits. So I would front everything. And then as I became a supervisor, I made my, my airmen do the same thing. You want to go home early? You want to party in Tokyo? Let's see who does a better job. So we make everything look like a storefront, and uh, and and I got noticed. And so that that notice, uh, you know, that I guess uh, that came from my leadership, resulted in me being selected as uh, Air, Air, Air Mobility Command's Airman of the Year for 1997. And and that's how things kind of started. So I I, I learned that job well. Um, received recognition for it and uh, and then was selected to be a quality assurance of value. So at that point, I was reading the instructions, the, the Air Force instructions uh, based on my career field from front to back, top to bottom, 
multiple times. And my job was to travel to different air terminals, which were contracted out to civilians by the Air Force, you know, and and evaluate their services. And and I, I so I learned the job even more so. And at that point, I was inspecting those terminals 10 days out of the month on my schedule. So I had blanket orders, I had a cell phone, I had a rental car authorization. I could travel by any mode, rail, over you know, over the road, or or by air, commercial airlines. And uh, I was pretty much on top of the world. And and when I applied for the special assignment at LAX, uh, where, where basically we had a ticket counter right next to Northwest Airlines in Terminal 2, um, it just paid dividends. At that point, I was, I was able to go back to school full time. And the commander from, from Travis Air Force Base would visit. We were, uh, because we were a detachment of his. So he says, Hey, AP, have, have you ever considered uh, applying to, you know, for officer training school? Because I, I did. I said, No, sir. I really haven't. I mean, I, I think maybe enlisted people do here and there, but, but I never gave it serious consideration. And that was because I had been in trouble in the Air Force. So I kind of teetered the line, you know, uh, in terms of not being squeaky clean. And I can admit that. I made some mistakes growing up enlisted. So so when com my commander approached me about OTS, I told him that if I were to apply, I would have to be closing in on the master's degree. At that point, I had completed the, the bachelor's degree. And so as soon as I was less than a year out, I applied for OTS. And wouldn't you know it, I got selected. So at the age of uh, 32, 32. So um, I put a couple of careers down, a couple of Air Force specialties down, including logistics readiness, which was the closest thing to an, a transportation officer. Because of the... Uh, of the you know reshaping of the air force and the downsizing or, or what we said right sizing uh, a lot of the career fields have disappeared but logistics readiness was the most applicable one and so that's that's what they selected me to be and uh i went to ots but i will add this before i, I guess in, in the process of getting to ots i end up uh with cancer testicular cancer out of the blue and I thought my my officer dreams or my career, my Air Force career was over. I had 13 years in at the point at that point. But uh, you know, like anything, I think people need to be well informed. And so I checked with different resources and asked what I had to do to convince the Air Force to allow me to allow to allow me to continue to serve. And uh, they said, Well, you just have to convince them that you're gonna be healthy and that your cancer will be will remain in remission. So, so I had the surgery and then I opted to, uh, have, uh, radiation, right? So I had radiation from, uh, the top of my, or my collarbone, basically all the way down to the top of my pelvis, 30 days straight. And that increased my percentages, uh, of the cancer, not or the cancer remaining remission. So that's what I underwent what they call a medical evaluation board. And I, and I succeeded. So. So they just kind of rescheduled my OTS dates and I went at a later time. I never told the OTS folks that I that I had just undergone all that treatment because I didn't want them to feel sorry for me or or uh, you know show some type of special favor. The only thing that did uh, that did weigh on my on my uh, flight was the fact that I was the older guy 
and I had to use the restroom quite a bit. And, it, and my, my uh, OTS class was from July to September. And so we had to hydrate quite, quite a bit. And so imagine hydration combined with radiated organs, not a good, not, not, good, not a good mix. So uh, I was constantly using that and, and constantly frustrating my flight, but, but it paid off. I, I got through OTS and, uh, and uh, I was the squadron commander the, the whole way, which was pretty cool for an old guy. And I got PF, top PFT, so top physical fitness training. For being 33, that's not bad. Wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> um, so how was your experience in OTS different versus your general experience in the military? So because I was already, I was already 33 years of age, it was, uh, it was frustrating, but I think the better part of that was learning patience, real patience, because you have upperclassmen and you have lower classmen. So uh, the upperclassmen were, were training, right? They had been there essentially uh, seven, six and a half weeks longer than, than we, the lower classmen. And I, I remember our, I think he was our squadron commander, one of our, our squadron leads, uh, Strohshine, Stro, nicknamed him Stro. Uh, Stro had been in, in the Air Force for six and a half weeks. I had been in the Air Force for 13 years, right? And obviously as, as they look at your, your closet and they see your, your, your ribbons, they know your prior enlisted. But uh, you'll, you would get certain remarks like, I don't know if you're good enough to make it in my Air Force. So that you're receiving these comments from from someone who knows six and a half weeks worth of Air Force in comparison to your years worth of experience. So that was frustrating. But at the same time, I think, you know, uh, patience and, and tolerance and learning to work with a whole new realm of people. And I'm going to tell you, I felt like a fish out of water. A lot of the uh, the OTs, the officer trainees, my respect, super sharp uh, individuals who had lots of experience uh, a lot of them had led missions in various parts of the world like uh, argentina or brazil or mexico and so they spoke multiple languages and uh, extremely intel intelligent young people and so it all it also made me realize uh, the caliber of our air force personnel right of our airmen super high amazing and so the age difference, yeah, posed a little bit of a challenge, but but I, I learned to work with new groups, new demographics out of, out of my room. All right. So transitioning from uh, your Air Force life, uh, for those listening who don't know, Captain Acuna Perez was actually a former uh, Air Force ROTC instructor. Uh, so for those who don't know, sir, um, can you just tell us what year did you become an instructor and also kind of how you got there and uh, what school did you teach at? Absolutely. Thanks. Um, so I'm going to give kudos to uh, an old commander of mine from Spangdalem Air Base, Germany. After I commissioned, um, because of the cancer, they placed what they call a code C, meaning I was limited to CONUS assignments, Continental United States assignments. Uh, so initially, I had an assignment to Okinawa, Japan, to work with AMC with my old bubbas, and that was like, nope, not happening. So either uh, you know the, the assignment team was kind to me, and they asked me, 
Well, we have three three choices for you. What would you prefer? Uh, we have uh, Davis Mountains in Tucson. We have Luke Air Force Base in Phoenix. And we have Nellis in Las Vegas. So I didn't want to go to Vegas. I have family there. And I said, nah, I don't really like the, the Vegas lifestyle. Davis Mountain was nice, but it was just too far south. And uh, since we were living in L.A., we decided, hey, let's go to Phoenix. And at the time, housing was booming and everything seemed great. So we chose... We chose that. And so, <clears throat> you know, I had never completed a short tour and our assignment team was hot on my trail. And they said, they asked me, all right, LT, you've been in for 16 years now. And so uh, uh, we'll gladly accept your, 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 your volunteer, uh, basically, uh, yeah, your volunteer aspect if you, if you go to Afghanistan somewhere. I said, wow, okay. It, it would be a one-year remote tour in what we call, in, what we call a, in lieu of, or joint expeditionary tasking with the Army. And I said, well, you know what? I answered, I said, 16 years, I've never really had a bad assignment. It's been fantastic the whole way. So I said, I think I owe the Air Force one tour uh, of whatever they asked me to do. And so they gave me a list of jobs, and, and I chose a embedded training team mentor and I went to the Pakistan border in Afghanistan. This was uh, Osama bin Laden's old terrorist training camp. That's where I was. I trained with the army for about three months at Fort Raleigh, Kansas. So I learned their speak. I learned their, uh, what they call their SOP, standard, standard operating procedures. And we trained together, we deployed together, we fought together and thank God we all returned together. No, we didn't lose anybody. Uh, no one was maimed, so no life limb or, or, or sight was lost. We, we all made it home before Christmas, and this was in 2008. So from January to December, I was there, and uh, I got the, the assignment of my choice. So I said, well, I knew Asia. Now I want to go to Europe. My family wanted to go to Europe. We went to, we went to Germany, and that's where I met Karen Stoff, uh, an Air Force Academy graduate, and I tipped my hat to her. She was awesome. Awesome. And so she had this, this uh, PowerPoint presentation that she made every officer compose, which is called a HUD, the heads up display. And it was basically a projection of your Air Force career. And in the logistics readiness world, she said we had one out of the box crazy assignment that we could select. And at that, at that time, we had uh, our options were uh, regional affairs specialist, which meant that we would uh, learn a language or if we knew the language, we would work in an assigned location. In this case, it would have been Latin America for me. Uh, and I tried for that, but but it, it's also always about timing. And my, the timing wasn't there for, for the RAS or PAS job, political affairs specialist. Uh, the other option was the IWI, education with industry. So this meant that they would take a guy like me or an, uh, an airman like me and send me to work with UPS for a year or Caterpillar or FedEx and learn their their the traits and their their procedures in exchange for you know returning to the Air Force and then sharing that that knowledge with the Air Force. And that's pretty cool if you think about it because we're we're cross sharing ideas and procedures and making ourselves better. Uh, the other option was to be an ROTC instructor, right? So since the others didn't pan out, I said, well, you know what? I'd like to be an instructor. I'd like to try my hat. At a, I'll try my luck at a ROTC. And I had a colonel who 
hand selected me to work with them at University of Arizona in Tucson. But uh, big Air Force song, Colonel, thanks, but uh, no thanks. This uh, this uh, captain is going to be going to California State University, San Bernardino. And my wife was upset. David, you have no idea. You've never seen you've seen my wife, but you've never seen her upset. She was upset at me, and she said she asked me why in the heck did you put San Bernardino as a choice as an option? No mm -hmm. <laughs> I said I don't know, but you know what? That's what ended up being the the secret, you know, the the well kept or was it the, the hidden blessing, if you will. Uh, I realized that the cadets at Cal State San Bernardino, they really were second to none. Uh, there, they came with a lot of different characteristics that I could uh, I could relate to, right? Including the ones that I mentioned up front, which were uh, single parents or uh, challenging, uh, you know, lower socioeconomic tiers of life. Uh, so I could I could really relate to that, and I I think I could really speak to it genuinely, and and it was cool. So I, I got to do that. It was a three year assignment, but I only completed two years. And the reason I did that is because I I was burnt out. So I think you asked about my position there. I began as a recruiting flight commander, but as soon as my 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 buddy, who was the operations flight commander, bailed out because he got his dream job with the California Highway Patrol, I was dual-hatted. So now I'm doing both jobs, and headquarters says, oh, by the way, we're not going to backfill that position. So AP, you got it, you know, and uh, I had to go with it. So it was it was a very challenging, but we got it done. And I think um, one of my favorite portions of that was field training which ROTC does as well. I mean, uh, OTS has some of that, but but ROTC field training was, was awesome. It was great. Um, along the same lines, do you have any quick memories that are your favorite from your experience at Air Force ROTC? Yes, there's a, there's a few, there's a few. Um, I think some of my favorite memories were uh, obviously watching and experiencing these experiencing the cadet from uh and i since i wasn't there you know but two years i got to see and witness it i guess you could say 50 percent of the way because these young men and women would would enter rotc um and it was amazing initially i thought well there's not much to rotc but wait a minute no there is a lot to rotc there's a whole lot to rotc right because you have to be, you have to be just like an LRO, a logistics readiness officer, you have to be a jack of all trades. So you have to balance your school life. You have to keep up your grades, right? You have to be competitive. Uh, you have to maintain your athletic side, um, a cadet. So you have to stay in shape. You normally have a part-time job somewhere along the line to make uh, monies, right? You have to earn a wage and then you have family life. And then you have, if you have a significant other, uh, relationship life, and then you still have the cadet life. So you have to be able to juggle all of those things and succeed, right? So once once you realize how much is involved, if, a, if an RTC cadet can manage all of that successfully, then I really think that he or she begins to earn the right to be an officer right? they earn that uh, it, it's uh, it's pretty amazing and at the very end of that 
uh, during the commissioning ceremonies when families are there and loved ones are there and you're holding your right hand and you're you're you know swearing them in there's no better feeling than that the smiles uh, the heartfelt appreciation that they've made it is 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 just one of the greatest memories ever greatest feelings ever and the funny one i think i could recall is that field training because i remember my uh flight commander my captain at ots who would have a couple of favorite sayings and this man was very intense very intense uh as soon as he would walk through the threshold of the door we we'd lock it up and you could hear a pin drop and you could hear him sigh he would like, <sighs> and he would say things like i hate this lectern get me another lectern and we'd all hustle hurry get it get get the captain another lectern because he doesn't like this one and then the next day i hate this classroom so we had to get another classroom you know and one of his favorite sayings was i hate stinky cadets did you ever hear me say that cadet fuentes uh, maybe not let's see said it a couple times maybe sir but... <laughs> All right, so I got, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, this is a funny moment. So here I am in field training. We're in uh, Camp Shelby, Mississippi. And the cadets, the ROTC cadets, had just finished their in garrison training at Maxwell Air Force Base. So they're there for two weeks. They graduate, per se, or make the next run. And then they move over to Camp Shelby for the uh, expeditionary portion of the training. And that's where Captain AP is. And at that time, I was uh, 225 pounds and just solid muscle and very i'm very ugly so it's very intimidating for these cadets who are on the bus and of course we have flashbang grenades and uh you know it, it looks like you're it really looks like you're deployed so the sirens are going off and i'm just over the top of these cadets i'm get the, get down on the ground get your ear to the ground come on they're shooting at us let's go take it seriously and they're like oh my god just big old guys so guess what i hate stinky cadets right so yeah, we we made we made fun of cadets because yeah, I think cadets exude fear, and uh, if you've not been to field training yet, you'll understand what I'm talking about when you get there. And uh, I'll leave that at that. But those are memorable memorable moments. Um, having the ATC vice commander come to the camp and coin me was a memorable moment. Uh, so late nights, hard work, uh, it all pays off, right? And what what I kept in mind was I need to know that I'm going to be doing the Air Force multiple favors here because we're, we're basically the gatekeepers for officers, right? And we want to ensure that these officers are going to take care of their people and they're going to take care of our resources. So while a cadet can be very smart, uh, very athletic, the bottom line then becomes can he or she lead their people? and it was quickly discovered there in that portion of the train. So cool moments. All right, definitely some fun and cool moments from there. Um, and for those listening, um, you might not have known that Captain Cunha Perez uh, not only taught Air Force ROTC, but later on he transitioned to Air Force JROTC. So sir, if you wanted to uh, speak on uh, what year did you become a JROTC instructor? Um, and where do you currently teach at? And then if you notice any of, uh, differences between instructing at Air Force RTC and Air Force JRTC between the two programs in, programs in general and differences in instructing the two. Sure. So I, uh, 
I retired from active duty from uh, California State University in 2014. Um, the reason I retired was I came to the fork in the road and uh, my career field manager mentioned, hey, you've got the, you got the majors leave. It's right here, baby. But uh, in order to, in order for, for us to give it to you, you've got to pay the tax. The taxes, you've got to go back on the road. One more, you know, remote assignment for another year. Now, the Air Force is fantastic and, and the Air Force does take care of our families, but no one's going to take care of your family better than you. So I, uh, I, I, my, my dad, who's, who's the one who inspired me to join the, the military, and you know his famous words were, "Go see the world. Don't be like your primos. Don't be like you know. Get out of here. Go, go check it out. Go do something different." So for the first time, you know, after 23 years, he begins to tell me, "You've done enough. Why don't you retire? You're already home. Why don't you retire?" And I thought, "Wow, I didn't think I'd hear my dad say that." So. So I thought about everything and, uh, and yeah, decided to retire. And I think my retirement ceremony was fantastic. Uh, I didn't have a rental crowd as, as some people do. My family drove up from Tijuana and San Diego and, and got to witness that and it, it was full circle. So after retiring, I got my dream job at California State University and I was the uh, internship coordinator for the campus. But I have to tell you, uh, we officers in the Air Force uh, are paid well, and you get accustomed to a certain uh, living standard. And so working for Cal State didn't pan out like I thought it would. And I found myself having to look for alternatives. And I didn't want to teach junior ROTC, David, honestly. I, I, it wasn't something I had planned. I think I had even said, that's the last thing I want to do, is work with students again. No offense to students, but I think I had, I, I had had enough at that point, or so I thought, right? So I was a week away from obtaining my police academy date in Chula Vista, and I had pretty much completed my background and my package and all that, uh, when all of a sudden I get a text from my boss, at C Mike's boss at CSUSB, Colonel Peterson, and he says, hey, there's a vacancy for a senior aerospace science instructor over at West Covina High School. And it's been vacant for a year. We think you would be the one to take the realm of it, to take the helm. I said, oh, I'm not sure. And then I had uh, my commander, uh, Colonel Lee, who was from Virginia Military Institute, BMI, who reached out to me as well. And, and he, he reiterated what Colonel Peterson said, which was, AP, you need to look into this uh, sassy position. I was so nice. So now I have a lieutenant colonel and a colonel asking me to look into this position. And of course, of course I'm gonna look into it. Not only do I respect these gentlemen, but uh, but that's two, you know, field grade officers, senior officers who, who I really respect telling me the same thing. So I start looking into it and I start weighing my options, police officer or senior space science instructor, West Covina or Chula Vista. Of course, I don't wanna work a bad beat. I don't wanna work a bad shift. And once I visited West Green High School, I, I fell in love with the students. I, I, I realized uh, how deprived they were of, of some structure um, because it, the seat had been vacant for a year. Uh, the program wasn't run the way it was supposed to have run. And uh, 
they were missing a lot of things, not just uh, not just instructor-wise, but resource-wise as well. So, <clears throat> uh, Mr. Dr. Trovatore at the time confided in me and and made me an offer that I couldn't refuse here at West Covina, and the rest was history. I I haven't looked back since. So I've been here six years now, and while I started a little bit harsh, I could say, because I was transitioning from active duty to uh, junior ROTC, uh, there's a huge difference between the two programs. College ROTC is basically, it's a commissioning source. So what we're doing there with you fellow cadets is, is it's serious, right? It's, we're, we're basically those gatekeepers that I mentioned. And you all are going to be the future leaders of the Air Force, uh, the world's most powerful Air Force. And so it was our duty to ensure that we were going to send the best, right? Uh, the whole person concept then applies. And as I mentioned to several, several students, uh, you're racked and stacked from the moment you walk through that door. Uh, everything from grade point average to athleticism to uh, co-curricular and everything else, right? So we want to know that you're going to be able to do uh, the folks a good service. Um, so it's very competitive and it's very, it's, a, it's, it's serious business. And I'm not saying that Junior RTC is not serious business, it is. But our mission here at Junior RTC is to build better citizens for our country. And that's different than, a com you know, than commissioning them. Anybody, any high school student can essentially join Junior RTC. They could, uh, they can be uh, special ed. They can be ling language uh, uh, English learners. They can be um, they can be on medical profiles. They can be asthmatic. Uh, they can be you know, overweight. It doesn't matter. We're not trying to make them military members. We're just trying to make them productive citizens, right? We're trying to instill in them a sense of service toward their communities. And yes. What I did personally is I brought some of the same elements that I, that I that I learned and that I instilled in college cadets at the high school level. And the reason I wanted to do that was because if a cadet were ever to transition from high school to college, then he or she wouldn't struggle with the transition as much and would recognize some of the same elements. And I feel that young people are extremely talented. You can throw a whole lot at them, right? And they're able to retain it and perform and, and excel. So um, while one program is, is uh, you know, is funded and serious, we're, we're building, we're, we're, we're gonna basically uh, commission young people to be officers and leaders. And this program is building better citizens, uh, totally different, but, but all toward the same direction, which is, you know, positive, positive young people. Uh, productive young people and so that's what we want that's what we need in, in in today's society in my opinion and most of the teachers on this campus and probably elsewhere will will, will will tell me but would probably tell anybody wow i wish we had more programs like that and i'm sure that uh you can attest to this uh david but um my mantra here is tough love tough love you know holding cadets accountable to the standards, holding cadets accountable to their word. And so leadership development begins here at this high school with, with me, at least in the circle of influence that, that I have. 
All right, and um, to just wrap it up, uh, do you have any of any of the JRTs cadets you've taught in the past or currently uh, who are actually have transitioned or are currently transitioning into a local ROTC program? That would be you, Cadet Fuentes. That would be you. Um, and I'm very proud of you. Uh, I applaud you for for doing it, for sticking with it, right? And uh, in the past, I, I don't have any other cadets that have tried it. I, I do tip my hat to my niece, who wasn't a junior RTC cadet, but is in uh, the RTC program over at Cal State San Bernardino. Um, and she's excelling as, as I think you are, especially if you're on this podcast, right? And, and let me tell you, you, you look the part, that must, that must mean you are the part, right? You're all about it, so uh, so I'm proud of you. But uh, in terms of you young people, my advice to you is to to always think about you know to have foresight and think about your actions and think about those around you and how you're leading them and how you're going to make a positive difference and, and cause that ripple effect for it to continue uh, throughout the dis different spheres, right? Um, because <clears throat> to me, it's, it's all about servant leadership. So if, if you, if you can, if you grasp that up front in the sense that you're going to be an air force leader and your job is to take care of people, obviously take care of our resources as well. Everything's technologically advanced. Everything's worth millions and millions worth of dollars, but, uh, you know, I know I'll be able to sleep better knowing that our college cadets are being groomed to be the best officers, right? To be the best Air Force officers to take care of their people who will in turn take care of their people. And it's just a ripple effect. So um, we need you, right? And so lead with your heart, not with your mind. Trust your gut. I would say that. Um, it's hardly ever wrong. Your gut's always right. And, <clears throat> and, Use, you know, exploit your resources, uh, senior cadets, other cadets, professors, cadre, reach back to your family, uh, stay humble, stay grounded. No matter how much you succeed, don't forget about your roots. Don't forget about the little people, right? And then when the time comes, you know, reach back and extend your arm and your hand and pull those around you up and make society better and, and just continue to do that, right? Reciprocation, reciprocation is powerful. I believe in it. So, uh, so go for the gusto and 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 lead with your heart, right? So that's what I would say to to all of you. All right. Thank you, Captain Acuna Perez, for sharing your experiences and advice with all of us today. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. And thank you all for tuning in to this episode of Sound Off, Leadership Lessons with the Airmen of Troy. Our music today was mixed by Cadet Rowett Minnan. You can check out the AOT on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and our website, airmenoftroy.org. We hope you enjoyed hearing from Captain Acuna Perez as much as we did. And remember, sound off and fight on. All right. Thank you.